You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, uh, we've been uh, through uh, Exodus uh, for a couple months now, and uh, we've gone through chapters 1 through 18 so far, which are really the sort of proper Exodus of the book of Exodus, as far as uh, the departure from Egypt goes, up until last week. And uh, we've summarized the, the story up to that point multiple times, so I'll spare you. You know it well by this point, hopefully, um, after... And now after about seven weeks of grumbling uh, and regrouping in the wilderness uh, over food and water and calling into question God and Moses' plan for Israel and desiring to go back to the supposed security and prosperity in, in Egypt that Israel had, we now come to what you could call a sort of second act um, after an intermission uh, in Exodus, a, a new half. And there are uh, two main themes in the rest of the book of Exodus, uh, and one we are beginning to prepare for this week. And that's the first one is that God will give his law and make a legal covenant or a contract, you could say, uh, with Israel. Uh, the, this covenant will be an extension of the covenant that God has already made with Abraham. Um, this is a sort of a renewal of sorts. And now the giving of his law, the Ten Commandments, which we'll have next week. Uh, and then, uh, after all of that, the giving of not only the Ten Commandments, but many other legal codes, uh, we, he, he will uh, give instruction for building his tabernacle, which is basically a portable temple uh, where God may dwell with his nation as they travel uh, on their way to the Promised Land. In today's passage, as I said, we're, we have a sort of lead-up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, which they will agree to and uh, agree to adhere to along with all those other laws that are to come afterwards. And today they come to the base of Mount Sinai, where God originally met Moses earlier at the beginning of the book of Exodus and the burning bush. He's already been there before, but here we are back again after a pilgrimage of about seven weeks arriving at the base of Mount Sinai in an encampment. And God has a sort of back-and-forth dialogue with Israel, mediated by Moses, who then speaks to the elders, who translate to the people of Israel, and back and forth. It's like a game of telephone, but the message gets across. Um, and uh, that's the sort of bulk of uh, what we have in today's passage where he invites Israel to be his covenant people. That's an important point, that he's inviting them to be his covenant people again, in effect offering to renew the covenant that he's made with them already through Abraham. Uh, and he gives them instructions after they agree uh, to be his covenant people. He gives them instructions to prepare themselves for this event. And uh, uh, and this is the event, of course, of that renewal of, of the covenant where God will speak uh, to Israel through Moses atop Mount Sinai. Uh, and uh, he tells them that they must consecrate themselves, meaning that they must set themselves apart as holy. That's the preparation that goes on for a couple of days before God finally speaks to Israel through Moses atop Mount Sinai. 
And here's a, here's a side note, um, and this is sort of alluded to in, in Hebrews reading that we had today. I'm intentionally avoiding ab- elaborating on the sort of dramatic tension that's at hand here in the passage, which is the dangerous and awesome presence of God that's manifested atop the mountain with the earth shaking and thunder and fire and cloud and lightning and thunderclaps uh, and the re- related warnings that God gives saying that they're not even to touch the base of the mountain. They, mu- they can encamp as close as possible to the base, but they may not even touch the base of the mountain lest they bes- be destroyed. Only Moses and Aaron are allowed to go up as the mediators for Israel. Uh, and uh, if they touch the mountain, they'll be destroyed because of this, this awesome uh, manifested power of God that we see here. Indeed, we've seen uh, that this uh, might of God already uh, in all the ten plagues that he's exacted on Egypt and the battle that he did with Egypt at the sea. Um, so I'm not going to dwell on all that, but um, side note that it's there. And it's an important point to take God seriously for who he is in and of himself. But I want to talk to you about another theme that's present here in this passage. We've already talked about the might of God before with the plagues and the splitting of the sea. So let's look at something else here that's, that's really important. Uh, this is the, the theme that I want to highlight for you, and it's an underlying theme that's been present since Genesis. This theme is the purpose behind the giving of the Ten Commandments that's to come next week. It's the theme of just who and what God's chosen people are to be. The theme of who and what God's chosen people are to be exactly. We've uh, started our series in Exodus at the beginning of Exodus, recognizing that God remembered Israel. Uh, that uh, he remembered them several hundred years after the original covenant with Abraham. He has heard their groanings, the groanings of the sons and daughters of Abraham who were enslaved in Egypt. And he's remembered that covenant that he's made with Abraham so long ago. Well, what's this all about? Listen to Genesis chapter 12, just the first three verses This is that original covenant. When he meets Abraham, before he's even called Abraham, he's called Abram. And with the covenant comes the changing of the name. But this is what God says to him originally. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me just highlight a couple points in there, okay? He tells Abraham, of course, that he'll make him a great nation, which we know the nation of Israel will come to him. But as Paul says in Romans, that all who uh, have faith in Jesus Christ are the spiritual heirs of Abraham, the nation truly of Israel. So that we know, but this point, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Basically saying, through you, Abraham, and the great nation of your descendants, I am going to bless the world. I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to all the world. 
And these three verses from Genesis chapter 12 are in a sense echoed in verses 3 through 6 in our passage today, especially verse 6. But I have to read to you the first few as a lead up to what verse 6 is all about. Let me read this to you again. And you can follow along in your your leaflets. This is uh, from our passage today, verses 3 through 6. While, God went, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Again, basically echoing what he's told Abraham already. I'm going to bless you so that I can work through you to bless all the world. You're my special treasure, the thing that I value above all other people's. But all people are mine. You're my precious treasure, but all of it is mine, and I'm going to bless all the world uh, through you. Do you see that they're basically saying the same thing again here? And a word that stands out in our passage uh, today uh, describes this reality is to consecrate, which means to set apart as different for holy use, just as we consecrate the bread and wine when we have communion. We don't change it internally, but we set it apart for holy use for the Lord's Supper, just like that. Something that is consecrated has a special role uh, for the sake of God's blessing on people and the world. This is the reason that God will give his law in uh, the next chapter, to render Israel basically strange among all the nations of the world, among all the peoples, yet making their whole existence a a sort of witness to the character of God. Ultimately, they are consecrated to bless the whole world. Now, here's the the thing that I I want you to to come to grips with, that the ethnic and uh, uh, national Israel would go on to fail in their calling, That, that this Israel, that... God made a covenant with through Abraham that is going to renew their covenant here at Mount Sinai, would agree to it and yet go on to fail repeatedly. I mean, even shortly after the renewed covenant is made here, we'll see in just a couple few weeks uh, that they're going to fail. And there would be constant reforms throughout the history of the nation of Israel. This is not to say that Israel was not at times a blessing to all nations. Indeed, at times they were. I mean, just to consider the life of Daniel during the exile or the role of Joseph in Egypt uh, that he played uh, in, in Pharaoh's court, being a blessing to the Egyptians or Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon, that they are to be a blessing to Babylon. But overall, Israel failed to fulfill its office properly. But now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is a new and spiritual Israel. It's not an Israel marked by nationality and ethnicity. 
Rather, it's marked by genuine heart conversion through trust in the redemption offered by Jesus Christ and a resulting sort of paradoxical, sacrificial love for an unloving world. This is how the the new and spiritual Israel would be marked and is marked. And so thus the, the church, you know, capital C church, is a sort of international collection of of Christians who are now God's treasured possession among all peoples. Christians now have the same calling to be a blessing to all the world, to draw people from all nations to God, to himself, that God will work through believers, through disciples of his son, to bless the whole world. People of all races, gender, nationality, and language backgrounds. And just hear the end of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, to all people. Go to all people. And in John's gospel, where he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You are to be a blessing by, by love. That is a sort of imitation of the love that I've had for you. This week I had a sort of strange encounter with a group of street preachers that left me really upset. I mean, you see street preachers around town or on the side of the highway with the sort of bullhorns and all that, and often you usually ignore them, right? Um, Unless you're a pastor like me, you kind of get into trouble in these situations. Uh, Because they asked me if I believed in God, and I said, well, yes, actually, I'm a pastor. (laughs) It's not something you don't want to tell a street preacher. Uh, But I did. You know, God was at work, right? But actually, it was a group of them. Uh, It was was really strange, because their whole message uh, was based on race, on ethnicity. And these are people who purport to be followers of Jesus Christ, okay? Basically, they were saying that everyone hearing them, everyone within earshot of them, was going to hell. And there was nothing that we could do about it. There was no good news. It was all bad news. Stand at the street corner and just proclaim bad news. What's the point in preaching such a message? If, if most people, including others of the same race, I mean, there were people of the same race hearing this, but they were telling them, have no hope of repentance and salvation. What's the point? Because they were saying that salvation is based on being of a a particular type of person, not just that race, but a particular type of person of that race. Look, you don't need to uh, talk to street preachers to encounter this kind of message. You could uh, just have a political conversation with someone of another affiliation these days, or read the uh, comment section of any news article online, or don't, because it's terrible, and you'll lose all hope in humanity. Or go on Facebook and Twitter or Instagram or Reddit. Did you know that there's a Reddit post dedicated to me where people decided to blast me? This is crazy. I mean, you can just lose all hope by going on these things. Or go to a Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family, whatever it is. You don't need street preachers, but you get what I'm talking about. And I asked the street preachers while I was there talking to them, engaging in a one-sided conversation that I saw was going nowhere, I asked them if they would like to pray with me. And they refused. And so I got down on my knees in front of them and repeated to ask them if they would pray to me, to the one true God, the God that they purport to believe in. And they refused. So I started to pray, and they prevented me interrupting me, not allowing me to pray. 
These supposed followers of Jesus Christ told me that they weren't a religion, but an ethnic nation. And I was fundamentally worthless to them. A fine target for vitriol, perhaps, but not worthy of any compassion or hope. Not even worthy of praying with. Their whole message, and that of any so-called Christian preachers that preach anything like this, who proclaim such an exclusive relationship based on uncontrollable factors, based on anyone's birth, is a damnable word. Full stop. So what's the point of being God's holy people? A nation of priests. And the word priest means to mediate. Just as Moses mediated between Israel and God atop Mount Sinai. What's the point of being God's holy people, his special treasure? What do you do with treasure? A wise man doesn't simply guard and store it like a a chest hidden in the ground for pirates to find. Rather, he invests it and diversifies the investment. And as such, the treasure becomes a blessing, not only for himself, but for, his, for others, for his children, and providing benevolence for his community. It's the same with God's chosen people, his treasure. As I said, Exodus 19 is a precursor of the role of that true and spiritual Israel, that is, the disciples of Jesus Christ, for all the world. Nowhere is this better seen than in the letter of First Peter, which is such a poignant epistle to read these days. If you haven't read it lately, I beg you to. Just listen to how Peter begins his letter to uh, Christian disciples around um, the Middle East. He says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, elect God's chosen people, his treasure, Exiles, you know, strangers in a foreign land, in the dispersion, the diaspora, all around the world, diversified investment, right? <laughs> and he goes on to say things like this in chapter 2. You are a ch- He's talking to Gentiles. This is Peter, you know, the Jew, writing a letter to Gentile con- pagan converts to Christianity to follow Jesus. He says, you are a chosen race. Does this sound familiar? a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Basically using the same language from Genesis and Exodus for Christians. And on on to verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will know we are Christians by our love, as the song says. In verses 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then finally in chapter 3, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. In the uh, very early church, you know, maybe a, a, a hundred or two hundred years after Peter wrote this epistle, uh, the Christians were still elect exiles in the dispersion. They didn't have basilica cathedrals like this yet because they were an underground movement in hiding in Greco-Roman culture. And there was a phenomenon in Greco-Roman culture that uh, was important for the growth of um, the Christian church, for the way that they interacted with this um, debased phenomenon in society. Have you heard of infant exposure before? You've seen this. I mean, basically, this is what happened to Moses when he's put in the basket in the, in the, in the river. And didn't this happen to Batman, right? His parents put, didn't they put him in a basket? Or was that in the movie? It, it's basically where, I mean, when people leave children at a firehouse, right? It's that kind of thing, where people leave a, a baby child out in the open. But it was, it was a despicable thing then, because most of these children would die. And let me just read to you a description of... Um, of what was going on in society at this, at this time. Uh, this is just one page from a book, a, a sociology book, describing what was happening. Even when Greco-Roman men did marry, they usually produced very small families. Not even legal sanctions and inducements could achieve the goal of an average of three children per family. One reason for this was infanticide. Far more babies were born than were allowed to live. Seneca regarded the drowning of children at birth as both reasonable and commonplace. Tacitus charged that the Jewish teaching that it is a deadly sin to kill an unwanted child was but another of their sinister and revolting practices. It was common to expose an unwanted infant out of doors where it could in principle be taken up by someone who wished to rear it, but where it typically fell victim to the elements or to animals and birds. Not only was the exposure of infants a very common practice, it was justified by law and advocated by philosophers. Both Plato and Aristotle recommended infanticide as legitimate state policy. The Twelve Tables, the earliest known Roman legal code written about 450 BC, permitted a father to expose any female infant and any deformed or weak male infant. During recent excavations of a villa in the port city of Ashkelon, Lawrence E. Stagger and his colleagues made, quote, a gruesome discovery in the sewer that ran under the bathhouse. The sewer had been clogged with refuse sometime in the 6th century AD. When we excavated and dry sieved the desiccated sewage, we found the bones of nearly 100 little babies, apparently murdered and thrown into the sewer. Examination of the, of the bones revealed them to be newborns, probably day-olds, as yet, physical anthropologists have not been able to determine the gender of these infants who apparently had just been dropped down the drain shortly after birth. But the assumption is that they were all, or nearly all, girls. And when this was going on in Greco-Roman society, the Christian church, the underground movement, would actually take those children off the streets and bring them in and raise them, adopt them as their orphan children. And over time, the surrounding Greco-Roman people began to notice and thought, what is this all about? This is so strange that these people would do this. Such a paradoxically loving thing. Uh, and many of those indeed would grow up to become 
uh, Christians themselves. And this caused the church to grow out of this perplexing act of love that drew other, others from Greco-Roman society into their underground movement. How are we to be the elect exiles in the dispersion today? What's our contemporary equivalent of infant exposure? It might not be a stereotypical cause. It might be relatively mundane. For example, our gentle behavior on social media in an internet troll generation. Our faithfulness to our spouses in a world that promotes promiscuity. Our focused attention and presence with others in a world that's distracted by media. Our love at extended family member gatherings such as Thanksgiving in a world full of resentment, abuse, and passive aggression. Our ethical business decisions in a world ever concerned with the bottom line. Our concern for people, all of them, in a world that treats others as a means to gratify our ends. Perhaps ultimately the most countercultural thing that we can do these days is just to be fully present with other people and to pray with and for them as if they truly matter to God and to us. But this is not a sort of do-good, wag-of-the-finger, shake-of-the-head, brow-beating sermon, okay? Our work in and for the world has a wellspring, and here's the source of our hope. Just as God has heard the groans of Israel and slavery, has heard the groans of our desperation under the weight of sin and evil and death, and he's answered those groanings. Just as God provided a Passover sacrifice for Israel, he has sent his son, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of all the world. And this is a message for you. He did these things for your groans and for your salvation. Don't you know that you've been rescued? Now your calling is not to go on living life grumbling like the Israelites did in the, in the wilderness, longing for the passions and idols of your former life. Chances are these things have objectified and alienated others. We are the elect exiles in the dispersion, resident aliens, and it's our privilege to be God's treasure, to be invested in the world, throughout the world. And our hope is in a blessed future. This allows us to live as benevolent neighbors in the time of our exile. And it's through us that God draws others to himself. So let's not be like the street preachers who pretend to hoard the treasure and yet flaunt it to others. Rather, let us have compassion on those who do not yet know and trust in the one true God. And if you do not yet know and trust in him, come be a part of the elect exiles and the dispersion. Respond to his invitation to be his treasure and be consecrated for holy use. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.